Mighty Watson. Welcome back to the Knife at the Gunfight. I'm your host, Doc Fitz, and it's only been a little while since we last recorded an episode. But this last week has seen testimony in a federal courthouse in Baltimore that is just unbelievable and also surprisingly underreported. So we felt it was important to bring this information to you. So we reached out to Baltimore journalist Baynard Woods, and what he has to say is compelling. So stay tuned. We ain't the same, we ain't the same, but we all relative. True, true. We ain't the same, you ain't gotta take what I'm saying for negative. True, true. Knowing you a king, knowing she's a queen, something that you better do. Andy. Bless me with the ice cold beat, my nigga, this was heaven sent So phone home, like good, looking for the dope I be sure to send a sample just to taste of what I wrote Visualize it, finalize it, monetize it, tweet and quote Never take it personal with no review, I hate a rope In between the lines of love, you gonna catch a couple lows We don't blow no energy on misery, other foes Good vibes and dope rhymes, all a king is fitting to know I be spilling Hennessy when I would kick it with my bros When I kick it with my Cause <laughs> Baynard, thanks for joining me and, you know, I feel like for people who don't know the Baltimore media scene, you've been at the center of a lot of stuff that's been going on in the last two years in terms of, you know, Baltimore Sun taking over the city paper, shutting it down, the Baltimore Beat starting up, your coverage of the J-20 protests and all of the dysfunction in the city. But what uh, I wanted to talk to you about is about what you've been doing for the last week. Basically, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you've been at the courthouse for... Uh, the uh, the testimony related to the uh, gun trace task force uh, division of the Baltimore Police Department and all that corruption there is that right? Yeah, yeah. So and the jury is out right now. So I'm I'm waiting sort of with with bated breath to see. I don't expect them to come back today for for what it's worth. But yeah, I've been uh, there for almost every day. There was one day that Brandon Soderberg, who's been uh, writing with me a lot about it, he's with the Baltimore Beat. I'm with the Real News. And so we've been trading off a little bit, but uh, there's one half day of testimony I missed that he was there for, and about vice versa. Otherwise, we've both been there pretty much uh, around the clock. And, and I know Justin Fenton has been there as well, but it seems like, from what I've read, really incredible testimony there that most of the media is sleeping on right now. Do you think that's correct? I mean, yeah, it's stunning. So... You know, to put a little bit of context, back in after after Freddie Gray died in 2015, and then those trials began in November of that year, the Guardian hired me to cover those trials, and um, you know, out of London, and almost every other national international outlet had people there, and and well, it was a very very important case, you know, and his death was certainly important, and I don't want to minimize that, but the trials themselves were insanely boring for the most part, were were primarily um, dealing with seatbelts, you know, did you buy a seatbelts for the department, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and these trials are, are, you know, I mean, not only is it more wide ranging, more structural implications to the department, but it's also just bombshell bit of testimony after bombshell bit of testimony. And it baffles me why the, ma- the national media has not been there. I mean, it's even been at the same time that everyone's going crazy about the FBI, you know, is, Trump going to fire Ray and McCabe is gone and the memo. And I mean, the memo turned out to be a like waste of time. Nothing compared to what's going on here. But uh, yeah, it's, it's baffling how few people have been there. So given that most people are missing this story, I think it's really worth identifying some 
of the more egregious examples and then how systematic this was. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not sure the best way to do it, but I know some of these players in this trial, like uh, uh, I guess uh, Daniel Herschel, I think his name is, exactly right, has been described has been described for years as someone who's been terrorizing East Baltimore, including the the well-known rapper Young Moose, and he's basically the reason that Moose wasn't at this concert with Scooter and Lil Boozy in 2014. That was like an iconic. Like Baltimore-wide hip hop con uh, uh, concert, is that correct? Yeah, so that's when I first became aware of Herschel was in 2014, and we got wind that uh, Moose's house had been raided, him and his entire family uh, locked up by Herschel, and that part of the statement of probable cause was using a rap video. The video is posted, and it shows people in a kitchen in the house and doing what looks like cooking up drugs, and uh, holding what looked to be guns. But, of course, you know, no one raids David Simon's house uh, <laughs> based on the things that are, are depicted in, in The Wire. And so that became the first, first Amendment sort of issue. It seemed like a First Amendment issue to me. And so I started really covering that case. And, and yeah, so Herschel first uh, started his, his run-ins with Moose started back in 2012. Um, and what seemed to be a case where it seemed, again, to be what we're seeing a lot of in this case. No real probable cause comes up. Strip searches him in public. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm remembering right, he then, Moose gets on probation over this. So then they're like, oh, he's violating his probation because he's cooking up these drugs in this video. So they lock him up. Then they're going to let him out. Uh, he gets out on bail to go to this boozy concert. And they pay, a, you know, his manager pays a big fee to get him out. And so Herschel is waiting there and sees him come out and runs to his probation officer, shows him the video, tells him that it's, the video was posted, in fact, before he was ever on probation. So there was no reason. It, it was chronologically wrong. It wasn't a, a surveillance video or anything. It was a, an artistic product. And the probation officer violated him. Um, amazingly, he, they're not supposed to talk to the press, but he talked to me about it at the time. I was like, yeah, I, he came to me and told me this, and so I watched all of those trials, uh, you know, and, and the judge ruled it cruel and unusual punishment to keep him without bail. They let him out. So every, then I started talking to people about Herschel a lot and noticing it a lot, and, and in various protests uh, surrounding the trial for uh, the officers that, that killed Freddie Gray, um, or in whose custody Freddie Gray died, the chant one night switched from fuck BPD or fuck the police to fuck Herschel. And people like knew him that well by name. Uh, he's also involved in a civil suit right now for chasing down on the, one of the nights of the curfew, chasing down a reporter and tackling him, even though the national guard said that he was a credentialed reporter told her so that at first he said, I don't care. So yeah, he goes back a long way. He's, and he's one of the eight members of the gun trace task force who pled not guilty along with, Marcus Taylor. And so they're the two who have been on trial and the six other members have all pleaded guilty. And I mean, one thing I think that's important to note is like, what the hell is the gun trace task force? Right. And right. Because the history really goes back is, is, but what Baltimore police does is it often changes the names of these squads from as they get in trouble for one thing, or another, always less trouble than this. It's never been quite this egregious. So close. Uh, they changed the name. So in 2006, they had flex squads in the districts and 
they were they worked together. They were able to go out and roll around. And among in these select squads were people like Fabian Laronde, who was finally forced out of the department a couple of years ago. Charlie Mushaw, who had two shootings uh, that I'll come back to in a minute, and uh, Gemini Jones, who was charged in 2006 with raping a woman in the Southwest precinct house. Uh, when the state police came and raided it, they found drugs in all of these officers' lockers and that they had to plant on people. So it's very similar kind of tactics to um, what we see with the Gun Trace Task Force. So they disbanded flex squads. Then you get all of these different names for operational units, VSIT, VSIS, SES. Um, but they're all the same thing. They're all plain closed squads. And when you look back at the people who, you know, there are protests about and stuff who have died due to interactions with police, right. the, it starts to stand out that the really remarkable thing about Freddie Gray is it's one of the only cases in which it was uniformed officers hmm. that resulted in someone's death. And almost all, Anthony Anderson, Tyrone West, Tyree Woodson, um, you know, on and on, it's these undercover or plain clothes, not undercover, they wear the police vest, but plainclothes, uh, narcotics, and gun squads. I, and I, I think it's worth being very explicit about what the M.O. of the uh, Gun Trace Task Force was and what the testimony in court is, is you know, uh, uh, that, that they did. And like you said, they would, you know, run up on people without probable cause, rough them up, look for money and drugs in their cars, in their pockets, get keys to their house, break into their home, you know, steal stuff out of their safe or steal money or when they had uh, confiscation of guns and drugs and cash, they would only report half of it, and they were using a bail bondsman to fence drugs and guns. Is, is th that's correct? Yeah, all of that is, is correct. The only thing that would maybe not be correct, and that is the subject they for the bail bondsman, because that seemed to be Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, who was the head of the Gun Trace Task Force, sort of solely doing that. So they... They worked together on a number of these scams, including the one you didn't mention was, was just stealing massive amounts of overtime from the city. Right, right. The, he would be working on his house. You know, planning to work 30 hours every single... Yeah. Uh, but all of the rest of that is, is entirely accurate. And one of the reasons I mentioned the other kinds of squads is what happened with the Gun Trace Task Force is that Jenkins led the SES squad um, uh, another operational unit that was a drug unit. And he was in there with Marcus Taylor, who's one of the defendants, um, Maurice Ward, who, who testified, uh, Mamadou Gondo and Jamel Rayum. And they were all, I mean, I'm sorry, I got it backwards. Uh, Gondo and Rayum were, were in the GTTF already. And so he was with, with Ward, Taylor, and Hendricks and Jenkins. And they were involved in all of this kind of stuff. And then on the other end, you have Herschel, uh, Allers, and um, Gondo and Rayum, and they're doing similar things, except in some cases they're different. So Gondo was working with his childhood uh, buddy who was a drug dealer, and once these two units joined together, uh, Jenkins wanted to go after and rob and maybe arrest uh, Gondo's buddy that he was working with, and Gondo tried to push him off of them. And so and it, there are weird entanglements between them, but yeah, that's a pretty good spot-on assessment of what uh, some of their MO was. I mean, they would go out together. They would go out and do 50 what they called door pops a night, where they'd pull up on any kind of crowd of, of generally black people and act like they're opening the door, see who would try to run, and then go after that person. And then, yeah, see 
if you can rob them. And not only see if you can rob them, ask them, who's the biggest drug dealer you know? If you were going to rob someone, who would you rob? And then they would try to go and they would put uh, GPS, illegal GPS trackers on people's cars, follow their movements, use every investigative technique that's available to the police, but do it using it for crime instead. So I, I think you've really is illustrated well two points. One, about how they function like a gang, basically, a, a criminal gang. Um, and also how this is rooted in structural problems with the BPD going back before this current task force. But I, I think some of the really egregious examples really haven't been talked about much. And one of them I, I know that you've mentioned is that, I forget whether it was Jenkins or Herzl or who, was basically after Freddie Gray's death in the riots, was coming back with garbage bags full of pharmaceuticals, probably a million dollars total worth of stolen pharmaceuticals that the Gun Trace Task Force was responsible for fencing and selling back on the street after they were stolen? Yeah, I mean, this is especially important because remember, after everyone saw the footage of the CVS being looted, and then there was the claim that 25 pharmacies were broken into that night, and then Commissioner Anthony Bass said that the spike in homicides following the the uprising were a result of those drugs being so, being sold um, and disrupting supply chains and creating turf wars and various things like that. So that was the theory for the, that plus the stepping, you know, the, the standing down of officers being afraid right. to be the next viral video or whatever. And so you look at that now and you see that Wayne Jenkins comes over to Donald Stepp of Bail Bondsman's house at 3 in the morning on April 28th, so while the fires are still going, with bags and bags full of, or two bags full, trash bags full of pharmaceuticals, like you said, a million bucks worth, and tell Step to start selling those for him. And he says he stole them from other looters, but we, you know, we don't have any way to really know and, that. And he did have a huge amount of burgl burglary equipment, right. including grappling hooks and stuff like that, and so... When you start to ask who had the capability to move across town like that that night, who had the capability to um, hit places without being seen to have a cover, um, you know, and what's more dangerous if you're someone like Jenkins to hit looters who are coming out? Because it wasn't any, any of those other pharmacies that were hit were hit by organized squads, not by, you know, I was at the CVS, and that was spontaneous and sort of, uh, but all of the other stuff were using the chaos to hit specific smaller pharmacies and it wasn't big crowds looting stuff it was people going in with a purpose and and why we would assume it would be other people more than people like jenkins you know when he's clearly had the capability to do it right. and, you know is is a good question and you know from my recollection 2011 was the year that baltimore hit its nadir in terms of homicides so now we're seeing since 2012 at least this kind of criminality in the police department that escalates right after freddie gray and after all of the violence gets worse but there was two other examples from the testimony that that you've reported that I found just egregious and that I, I, I'm left wondering what, what's the rest of the story. One is that they, they were doing one of these uh, sort of unauthorized pursuits of someone they thought was a drug dealer who ended up getting in a really bad car accident, right? And instead of acting like first responders, they pretended they were never there and drove off. Is that correct? Yeah, and I mean, we, this, was, this was a horrible... Uh, this was the worst moment of the trial, I think. I mean, there were many shocking moments but because we heard this on audio. This wasn't testimony. This was, they had Gonda's car bug wow. at this point. And in Gonda's car was Rayum, 
uh, Herschel, Gondo, and Taylor. And you hear them talking about it. And it was just, it, it was so shocking that Herschel, especially Ram, was like, we should do something. And, and Ram seemed shaken up about it on, on the stand. Herschel was like, let's go back and forge our time cards and say we weren't working when this happened. And then say, oh, I was just driving home. Huh? And he's laughing so, as they're doing this. And, and Taylor said, oh, well, he ain't saying sh- uh, dude's unconscious. He ain't saying shit. Do we know, do we know who that was? We like, don't, do we know I'm what happened to, to that person? Did they die? The person didn't die, but I haven't been able to figure out more of how, what happened. I mean, it's not only that person, it's two people, right? So the person who they were chasing ran a light and right. T-boned into another car. And right. so, you know, this is exactly what happened in 2010 when Sean Souter, Wayne Jenkins, uh, and uh, Ryan Gwynn went out, were chasing someone, Umar Burley, Burley's car crashed into another car. Burley thought he was being robbed because it came out. His lawyer says at least that Sean Souter, the, the detective who was murdered in right. November, right before testifying in this case, jumped out of the car with a mask on and a gun. So he sped away thinking he was going to get robbed. They chased him. He crashes into someone else, and the guy did die, the other guy. Wow. And so they, before rending, rendering medical aid, they called in a, uh, another sergeant to come with an ounce of heroin that they planted in Burley's car. Wow. So that's 2010. That's incredible. And the other thing that made it agree, so that, that was resonating when you hear this. The other thing that was resonating, and, and Herschel's whole family came to court every day, would bring a cooler with their lunches and stuff. And they had another son, his brother, who worked at City Hall, who died in, in 2006, I believe. I'm not sure. I can't remember the year. I could look on my phone if we weren't talking about it. But he, mm-hmm. uh, he was, and he was really against cars, as, as I am. I, I, think actuarially and whatever else is the most dangerous thing we could be doing. But he was walking home from work from City Hall, and a car came off of 83, being pursued but not chased, it seems, from what they said, uh, by a highway patrol, and it jumped a curb and ran him over and killed him. And so to hear Ursel laughing about, and he said at one point, oh, these car chases, it's a crapshoot, you know, it's 50-50. And to hear, it must have been just devastating for his family to have heard that. So you you brought up Sean Souter, who you know is the uh, the homicide detective who was murdered on well, either murdered or committed suicide on duty. I guess we're not entirely sure. And his involvement in this case, I think, is also another layer that I want to get to. But there was one other part of testimony that I was confused about. Maybe you can help me. That there may have been a police-involved shooting or a murder by a police officer that was then covered up. This was part of testimony. Is that correct? Yeah, and I, I was going to mention this. I mean, this is the most, one of the most insane things. In the, so Sean Kennedy was shot in 2009 by Jamel Ram, and basically at point blank through the car window. And what they said at the time was that, that Kennedy was about to run over Officer Jason Giordano, and so in order to stop him from running over him, uh, Ram shot him. On the stand, Gondo testified that Rayum told him, fuck him, I didn't feel like chasing him. And that Gondo said, well, you know you murdered that guy. And he said, yeah. Um, then he testified that Deputy Commissioner Dean Palmier came out, coached them all on what to say. And the same day as that testimony, 
Dean Palmier announced his retirement. Wow. Uh, you know, and he's, he's uh, number two in the department. Wow. Deputy Commissioner, going back to 2009, and to, to put a little bit of, of light on this, this is, uh, you know, Gondo is, is certainly a liar. Um, you know, has certainly been known to lie in the past, which doesn't mean he's lying at that moment, but it's, it's worth taking a, a certain degree of skepticism into there. Uh, Gondo also said, I mean, Ray also testified that Gondo told him that he laid someone out and that he, he had murdered someone. And so, uh, you know, I mean, this is, this is some heavy stuff, but so yeah, that he shot someone in the head at point blank range because he didn't want to chase them that a deputy commissioner and numerous other officers colluded, came together and made a conspiracy to create a false narrative. And what's so horrible about that narrative, I said I would come back to Fabian LaRonde and Charlie Mushaw, but um, they shot a, a guy who, his last name is Muzan, I, I forget his first name right now. Um, but when they shot him, they said, oh, he tried to run us over, and so we shot him. And a video of that came out last week, and it looked like the car was nowhere near coming close to running anyone over until after he was shot, and then the vehicle was veered off to the side, as will happen. And, and one of the other things that came out was that uh, Wayne Jenkins coached everyone in the GTTF to have BB guns in the back of their car in case they shot someone and they didn't have a good reason they could throw it on him. And that was another case with LaRonda and Michelle that uh, they shot someone and, oh, he happened to have a BB gun on him. And so we see these things again and again and again, this, this playbook that if we were to accept Condo would be sort of the, the Palmier Jenkins playbook uh, that shows them how to cover up shootings. So you mentioned Detective Sean Souter, who the homicide detective who was shot and killed in November of 2017 while on duty the day before he was scheduled to testify in this federal investigation into Baltimore police corruption. So what have we learned about Detective Souter? And, you know, I think the failure to have any clear information about his cause of death, murder while on duty, really highlights the dysfunction of the Baltimore City Police Department. Um, does, has this testimony shined any light on uh, Detective Souter or his death? Well, so it came up on the stand. Gondo testified that early on in his career, going back into 2008 or nine, I think, that he was stealing with uh, stealing money from people with Sean Souter. He was involved in that 2010 case with Jenkins and numerous, numerous cases with Jenkins. When you go and through case search and you look at the cases he was on, he was in. Uh, he and Jenkins worked together for a long time. Now, rumor in the department is, and I haven't been able to confirm this, but that he requested to be transferred away from Jenkins at some point. Whether or not that's true, you know, the, the truth of that, I don't know, but he was transferred, whether he requested it or not. He ended up going to Western District as a detective and then into homicide and stuff. So he wasn't working with Jenkins anymore after a while. But um, I think that this, web of criminality goes so much farther. The FBI has been very clear that this is a uh, ongoing investigation and the it's been very clear that it goes far beyond what we know right now and 
the department, you know, they tried to make a big deal out of how clean Souter was. They had that huge hero's funeral. And, uh, you know, at the time I questioned that in, in a cover story for the beat and a story on the real news found that he wasn't actually buried in the grave where they stopped traffic and everything to take him to. And that whole thing was a propaganda show to get support for the department in the midst of this huge corruption scandal. And, you know, they're still not being held to account for that. How much money did that cost? And what did they know? And when did they know it? Well, given this really profound criminality in the Baltimore Police Department, and we haven't talked a lot about the FOP, but the Fraternal Order of Police here, I feel like, has always had a regressive role in the city that's been hostile towards a lot of the communities that it polices. Um, I know Lawrence Brown at Morgan State has suggested that the police department should be disbanded, and you covered at least one protester that was making that point. Um, And there is an example where the Camden, New Jersey Police Department was uh, just so dysfunctional that a handful of years ago it was disbanded, and they started a brand-new police department under new leadership. And, you know, murders have gone down there since then. Um, Is anybody talking about that for Baltimore? Can the police department survive this? Is there any chance that it is disbanded also, anything like that? Well... Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I'm, I'm, once all this is done, I'm actually going to go spend some time in Camden to try to study how things are working there, and also in Richmond, California, where there's supposed to be, uh, there's a sort of progressive takeover of the town and of the police force, and murders have gone down, and, um, you know, as well as complaints and stuff. And so, you know, there, there have been, Ryan Dorsey, a city council member, has been calling to disband the BPD. It is, I mean... Because the other thing to remember with the Souter investigation is they locked down an entire neighborhood uh, for nearly a week unconstitutionally at the justification of this detective being murdered. And so if it was an inside job, if it was a suicide, which I don't think it was, uh, though I imagine it will be announced that it was. Wow. I, I don't know that the BPD can come back from this. I really don't know how they it can continue to function in any way without there being such a cloud of suspicion over every single action that they take, how they could be effective or do anything. And it's all like a big function of, of the drug war and the way we've done policing in this country in general. So it's not just, we may, we may be an egregious case, but, but I feel like it's the way that American policing works. Well, I think it was, uh, I forget who coined this. I'd like to give the credit. Maybe it was Lawrence Brown on Twitter, but the Baltimore containment fallacy, I think, is a good way to describe part of what our policing's been. If you can, we have these deeply, deeply segregated city, deeply impoverished pockets. And the belief is, is if we can keep those contained, then one, police can do whatever they want there to keep the numbers up and to keep people feeling safe. And two, um, people will be, they believe people will be safer because it will only be people in poor neighborhoods killing each other. And, and I think all of this is really a fallacy. And, and, you know, I don't know if BBD can come back from this. I really don't, <laughs> excuse me, I really don't know how you go out on the street and do your job as a detective today. Right. Um, I have a friend who's a detective. I'll have to ask him. Um, but the other point, a friend of mine, Erica Bridgeford, who's organizing with Baltimore Ceasefire, raises the question, how many murders, like how many killings uh, and how much violence 
could we realistically place at the feet of this criminality in the Baltimore Police Department? Obviously, all the murders aren't the fault of any one agency, but there was at least one case, right, where uh, someone who owed a drug dealer money was robbed and then was murdered. We have these a couple more examples of people getting killed at the at you know because of violence or criminal neglect by these officers. Do you have a sense of, of how much violence was really caused by this uh, this group of, of officers? Well, you're right that there it came up in the, the drug the federal drug case that, that Gondo testified in, uh, that yeah, someone was murdered because of the these officers robbing them. We have the two Gondo and Rayo meet saying that that the other murdered someone. So that gives us three uh we have Sean Souter, whether even if you were to accept the suicide theory, where as a result of all of this, another death. Um, you know, and this is just looking at the hard numbers. Then if you take Batsa's theory seriously, that the distribution of the drugs from uh, the pharmacies caused the spike in murders, and you add those, and then you add, you know, one of the people who was released recently was uh, one of the ceasefire, uh, I mean, not ceasefire. Safe um, streets. Uh, safe streets guys from the Mondawmin safe streets. And when he was arrested with a gun, Mondawmin safe streets was also shut down. And they had had in that safe streets area, they had had the homicides down to zero the previous year. And then it skyrocketed after that. So, I mean, hard numbers that we know, you know, that we've heard in court or testimony or something like that. We've got, we've got four. And then you start adding these other things up and, and it's huge. Right. Not inconsequential. Uh, any other uh, comment? I know you, you're very busy and have to go soon. Any other comments or any summary that, that you're experiencing, uh, witnessing this testimony that you want to share with people? I mean, one of the main things that came out of it for me, and I was gratified that in closing, I wrote about it the other day, and I was gratified in closing remarks that the prosecution actually mentioned it, but the the defense in this case was was really disgusting in some ways. I mean, it's, they're doing their job, but um, so if a black person had large amounts of money, it meant they were a drug dealer, and therefore that they could be robbed. And then the next day, if a black person had small bills, well, then that meant he was a drug dealer. And if he was in a nice neighborhood, well, this neighborhood's too nice. How did you end up with a house in this neighborhood? You must be a drug dealer. If he was in what they call a bad neighborhood. Um, but she said, you may call it that, uh, but it, it's where my friends live. It's where I grew up. You know, if you're in, if you're in a bad neighborhood, then it means you're a drug dealer. And so I think there's this weird, almost Calvinistic theological, uh, almost like the way that book was with you're either for us, with us or against us or something, but sense of good and evil that these guys had that, that got re- so twisted and depraved that you, if you, they saw you as a criminal, nothing they could do to you would be criminal. And nothing you could do would be not interpreted as criminal behavior. So if you're a criminal in advance, no matter what you do is criminal behavior. And if you're good in advance, a police officer, nothing you do can be criminal behavior. And that, to me, is the logic that became so painfully clear through these weeks of testimony now. Wow. Well, uh, I'll let you go in a minute, but before I do, I always like to get a, a cultural recommendation, a book, uh, an album, a music, uh, a work of art, or a performance um, that you want to recommend to me and my audience that we might not uh, uh, experience otherwise. 
Well, I mean, one thing that, that we've been joking about at, at the trial, so I'll mention them, is, is how uh, this trial has really made movies like Serpico and Training Day seem almost quaint. Uh, so I know most people have heard of those, but um, those seem particularly uh, apt for what I've been kind of obsessed with at the moment. But I'd also like to recommend Easy Jackson, who works with me here at The Real News, um, is is also is a rapper in town. And he just put out, a, a for Black History Month, a really beautiful new video called Unapologetically Black. Um, and I, I think it'll probably be out tomorrow. Uh, but it, it's a really beautiful song and a beautiful video. And I'd also then recommend uh, listen to some Young Moose. He raps about Herschel in it. Um, go on and, and, you know, Dum Dum was his famous song that he had as he was sort of rising up but on uh Altima three which he he put out sort of once he got out of jail there are some lines specifically about Herschel and about him being racist in there and so any of the out the mud uh tapes from young moose as well nice Nice. Well, I'm going to make a quick recommendation. Uh, someone who sat next to me in seventh grade English class uh, just helped uh, Greenspan produce uh, a music video for his song, Indie. So definitely check that out. I'm proud of my friend for, for Angel Williams for helping put that together. Um, and you've probably read it already, but if not, or for my listeners, anyone hasn't read it, uh, uh, Gary Webb's book, Dark Alliance, I think is sort of a different end of sort of government criminality and the drug war gone awry um, on a larger scale in California, but I, I think it, it kind of echoes with uh, our, our sort of small-scale citywide corruption in, in response to the drug war. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would add to that that I, I think that's, talking about, uh, you know, movies and, and the police, the way that our policing stuff looks with Training Day and stuff, that uh, that's the only journalism movie that really strikes me as, as very accurate, you know, that it, that it ends with uh, Webb ruined and right. then dying of, of suicide with two bullets to the head. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to me. I know you're real busy. Uh, we look forward to, to what you'll, you know, be putting out. And uh, let's, n- uh, let's not make this the last time. Don't be a stranger. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I'd love to talk with you some more about uh, Pershing Park and twinning and some other stuff and and i really appreciate you having me on simon and and i yeah i apologize for being busy it's not normally like this um i mean breaking news is breaking news but i don't normally feel quite so hectic it's it's all good man it's a good problem okay well anytime you want man it's an open invitation all right on on uh, on my on my channel or yours all right thanks a million i really enjoy talking with you all right take care you too no Cleon, but you be bluffing. Baltimore on the war tour with me and my mans. I hit the city with the mic in my hand. I learned from the best and I roll with the trill. Yeah. Men lie, women lie, you I don't feel. I shine, you shine, call a tech and feel a steel, nigga. Yeah. Reporting live from the underground. My city was burning, young as gunning, look who running now. Can't be worried about what could have been or should have been. When you get in love for showing love and I ain't hurt you in. We still in the sand since tricycles, rolling over crack needles. Graduated the bicycles, handing out crack. The things who needed, the people needed, the leaders they failed They're going and telling nigga lead they selves 
good brothers doing time, fine cheating themselves. From the inside, they making sure they family well. Yeah, I tell the police quick, I know you ain't, bro. You talk to me respectfully, I do the same, bro. Fuck your life, fuck your kids and your wife. Cause if you're killing me tonight, it'd be a hell of a price. I spend time trying to understand that whole thing. Then realize it ain't a point, I take it slow, late. Cause wisdom come from intuition, a lesson learned. The vision come together in a minute, the session burn. We spark in this unity in the ancestors, spirits, and slaves. Ain't nothing to be played, mess around and get slayed. That's a product of the happenstance. You just happen to glance, but they didn't know the truth. You thinkin' we scrapping for stamps. <laughs> I got some double ideas, J4. Thanks again to Bernard Woods for joining us. I hope you all enjoyed that at least as much as I did. Interestingly, when asked about this trial, the Baltimore mayor basically said that she hadn't been following it. If I mention that the political institutions in this city are in a state of crisis, on the positive side, Baltimore has just seen 10 days without any murders, which is the longest stretch since March of 2014. I'd like to think, hopefully, that our work with Baltimore Ceasefire is at least one small part of that. In any case, uh, you may have noticed some of the music on today's episode included Indie by Greenspan. And, you know, I've been enjoying this week listening to Greenspan's 2016 album, Never Gone Die. And that last song we just listened to, you may recognize Easy Jackson's voice from the track Keep Swimming off of that same album. And to close out the end of the show, uh, you're going to hear that... Young Moose track off of Out the Mud 3 that Baynard mentioned. That song is called Tired. You may hear him talk about Detective Daniel Herzl. So, thanks again for joining us. Hope to see you again next time. Out the Mud Volume 3, let's get it! Turn around, they like MFC. My father sending me dots. 
want me to worry You throwing dirt on my name, then you need to get buried My name whole weight, every day that's something I carry The hood love me, I'm a street legend, Wayne Simpari I can't believe my P.O., that nigga fucked up my head He the one gave me the number to a turn to a fed Man, I guess they just alike, back then they was swears That's why on every arrest, them bitches pull up in pairs It's really wicked in my city, I'ma let it be known When they kicked in my door, they was trying to find a tone Fuck the law, I hate them bitches, I wanna go home And I was yelling out the cell, like I'm first on the phone Nigga, I'm tired of being locked in I'ma chop a nigga up, my baby mother don't answer Uptown, move you around, turn your ass to a dancer Put my niggas anywhere, guarantee they gon' stand But sweet as shit, I swear to God, I'm about to order some Pampers Only way I'm going to school if I'm in charge of the campus Fuck the law, that's fucked up, what they trying to do to me It's a dirty, dirty world, now I'm feeling like Boosie Niggas clowns, can't wait till I get out of this coochie He was blood, went home, now he rockin' the Koofy And shout out to Young Donkey, making sure I was Gucci Leave a nigga ass silly if he actin' too goofy It's my family, I ain't God, it's my girl doing fine When you locked in the cell, all that shit on your mind I need some brown, let me know when that shit drop in If I ain't gettin' my way, fuck it, I ain't lockin' in That's right, we doing this one for the mitmots In the rain wearing flip-flops All them bums, we got you on this one, salute Young Moose, DJ Riz, let's go